0: Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Beth Burke and Chris Sands.
1: Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I am Scotty Greenwood, and I'm joined by the ever fabulous, wonderful expert in everything Canada, U.S., Christopher Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Good to see you, my friend.
2: Hi, Scotty well, and welcome back to you.
1: Thank you. Well, so so just for our listeners, this is a bit of an encore. Uh, Chris and I started this fabulous Canada U.S. podcast approximately 100 years ago when we were young. It feels like 100 years. Um, and it's a project of the Canadian American Business Council, which is an organization uh, that I love dearly and had the honor of leading for 23, almost 22 and three quarters years and I stepped down last fall we're recording this in 2024 uh, I stepped down in uh, about five months ago to, for another opportunity with a great Canadian company I'm super excited about but so we never got a chance to say farewell and right after I stepped down I happen to be I'm sorry this is a long wind up because our guest is very patient but it, it'll explain it Right after I made a transition and joined the iconic uh, company Manulife, um, I happened to be at the Halifax International Security Forum, which, Chris, you and I have talked about as one of the world's most important gatherings discussing peace and security. And I was at one point sitting next to the Honorable Peter McKay, who is the co founder of Halifax International Security Forum. He was the Minister of Defense at the time. I know we're going to get into the introduction. But he said, you know, Scotty, how's the new gig? And I said, it's great. Um, I think I'm going to miss Canada-U.S. all day, every day, because now I have a more global role. But why don't you come on Canusa Street, and we'll talk about your incredible time, Peter McKay, doing Canada-U.S. relations and going global, and we'll, and we'll use that as an excuse for my uh, farewell on Canusa. So I don't know if it's a farewell or an encore, but... Uh, anyway, long wind up. We have Peter McKay with us, and he is a distinguished leader uh, in the world, really. Uh, he hails from Nova Scotia, and um, we're going to get into a conversation with him, but how about for anyone who of our listeners who doesn't actually know um, who Peter McKay is? Uh, why don't you in- give give the introduction and then we'll get into it, Chris?
2: Oh, that's wonderful, Scotty. I think it's a very special episode. That's what we'll we'll call it. Uh, for those of you who had after school specials in your past, the Honorable Peter McKay uh, has joined Deloitte Canada and McInnes Cooper uh, as a strategic advisor. He served in Parliament for over 18 years as a cabinet minister, as as Scotty said, in high profile portfolios including justice as Attorney General, Department of National Defense, Foreign Affairs, and at the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency. He chaired the government's National Security Committee for almost 10 years. Now, he started his legal career in Nova Scotia as Crown Prosecutor in the Criminal Law Division and worked as a general practitioner before entering politics. He earned a BA from Acadia University in 1987 and his LLB from Dalhousie University in 1990. But here's the key uh, point for today's discussion, Scotty. In 2009, Peter McKay envisioned creating a space in Canada where ideas from democratic nations could converge and foster peace. The vision led to the birth of Halifax International Security Forum, which draws leaders from more than 50 countries to participate in what's usually a two-, three-day event, a very big one every year, engaging in discussions that help shape global security policies and strategies. It's a wonderful forum, and it's wonderful to have you here, Peter. Well, thank you very
3: much, Chris and, and Scotty, uh, thank you as well. Honored to join you for uh, for a good chat about critically important issue, and that's Canada- U.S. relations and everything that stems from that. And uh, Halifax, uh, yes, Peter van Prague and I um, wasn't an original idea as much as taking a good idea and, and putting a bit of a Canadian spin on it and and hopefully, now having established uh, for 15 years. This discussion here in Halifax and Nova Scotia. uh, I I dare say, given all of the geopolitics that are unfolding in so many parts of the world, a dialogue amongst democratic countries is a very good idea, and uh, we have to do more of that. And so, Halifax, I think, has become quite foundational as far as bringing important decision makers and thinkers and academics and uh, government members together to have those. Really critical insights as to what's happening and and what we can do about it. Most importantly, what are the action items?
1: That's exactly right, Peter. And you know, Halifax is um, really. I mean, I think I think you're being even a little modest about it. It is it is incredibly important to bring, you know, U.S. Secretary of Defense, U.S. Congressional delegation, world leaders come together um and have difficult conversations about the state of the world so uh so so it's it's a lot of canadians and americans maybe haven't heard of it if you're not in the peace and security space but uh it is uh it's it's a very very big deal something that the top brass at the pentagon uh actually plan their calendars around um and so you know we're recording in february 2024 and and it is this Tomorrow is the second anniversary of the Russian uh, latest invasion of Ukraine and the war there. And Peter, maybe we could start there because that is uh, we've talked about it on Canusa Street before. We've had Peter Van Praeg here talking about uh, talking about that invasion. In fact, um, we titled it Putin will lose uh, because uh, because that was considered and is considered really important for all of our values, democratic values around the world. So what are your thoughts now, two years in, um, on where we sit with Ukraine? And how about the Canadian point of view in particular?
3: Yeah, let, let me pick up on what Peter Van Praag said. And Peter has, uh, has been to Ukraine uh, recently. I've been there a number of times, but not so recently. And so Peter has a very important uh, um, perspective on this and a longstanding one. Putin must lose uh, and will lose, but the quicker the better. And and so what I would say, and I'll I'll begin with this and and then maybe unpack it a little, is that the West has to step up. They have, but quite frankly, there's a bit of an inflection point right now. We really need to get them the necessary munitions, uh, air cover, and, and hopefully fighter aircraft, um that's been a long time coming um and you know the it's not that countries have been hesitant i think many countries canada the u.s in, importantly and many of our nato allies have been coming to the aid of ukraine uh obviously there is an element of uh, trepidation on the part of nato countries not to trigger article five and uh, i'm sure listeners know that if uh If it is perceived that a NATO country has been um, threatened, invaded, then all countries within NATO, 31, soon to be 32, will come to the aid of that country. Ukraine is not in the club, so to speak. They're not uh, NATO. But if NATO is seen, and and Putin and and, uh, the Kremlin have tried to use this as a bit of a, a lever to keep NATO countries out from helping... Um, that could also trigger a a wider conflict. And so that has been part of the the banter. But I I would suggest strongly that Putin would not stop at Ukraine were he to succeed. And and success from a a Kremlin perspective. That's the worry. Essentially, they're, they're very much intending to take over the entirety of Ukraine and keep going. Yeah. And so let's let's be clear-eyed about that. There is no question that Putin, in some twisted, demented part of his mind, thinks that he can recreate the Soviet Union, and that uh, he he wants to right old wrongs and uh, bring about retribution on perceived uh, uh, slights, perhaps, and and uh, and treatment of the of the Russians in the past. None of that matters in in the current context. Russia has. Illegally, unilaterally invaded a sovereign country, breaking just about every international convention, and quite frankly, upending uh, the entire international global peace and security that has existed essentially since the end of the Second World War. And, and this is a war, right—a full-on um, conflict right on the doorstep of Europe, and. I come back again, and I reiterate the necessity for Western countries to do more. We have to do more. We cannot afford anything less than seeing the Russians lose. And in the longer term, Putin has to leave office. And, you know, I don't want to be sort of uh, vague about that. He is uh, an international criminal. He should be brought before The Hague for war crimes, uh, including the displacement of children, millions of, U- of Ukrainians that have had to leave, or leave their homes or leave their country. And uh, he has acted in a way that uh, many could have and would have predicted if we had uh, really been playing, paying closer attention.
1: As a foreign minister, Minister of Defense, Attorney General, um, and really passionate advocate. I think you're. I think you're so well placed. I, I wanted to ask you about Canada's role in particular and how you're feeling about it. I will just preface it by saying I. Earlier this week, I had um, the great opportunity to have dinner with uh, Chairman Mike McCall, the chairman of the U.S. Uh, Congressional Foreign Relations Committee, a friend of yours, and and, and Chris is at the Wilson Center and mine. Uh, he's He is an outspoken advocate for exactly what you're talking about, which is more capability for uh, Ukraine. He's frustrated with the pace of the U.S. getting um, capability over there. He, he has debates you know, with with various people in the U.S. government to say we've got to give them more capability. And his point, which I agree with, and I don't know if people have thought about, is that, you know, when in the U.S., for example, and I would say Canada too, when we send capability, weapons, ammunition, all of that over to Ukraine, they're, they're the ones that are fighting and dying. We're not. But when we send them capability, not only is it fighting the good fight, truly, but it also... Is investing in our own domestic, uh, you know, defense complex, if you will, our own—it's jobs in, in North America that are building the planes, right? That are building the attackums that are that are. That's so. It's an investment in our own capability too, and so that's that's the debate happening in the U.S. Is that debate, Peter, happening robustly enough in Canada? I, you know, do do Canadians perceive the threats and Canada's role, uh, perhaps the way Chairman McCall perceives it in the U.S.?
3: The short answer is no. I, I don't think, sadly, there is enough recognition uh, and, and, quite frankly, fear, uh, because this is very real. And, and I, again, I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but, you know, Russia is a neighbor of Canada's. You know, they're just across the Arctic waters, and they are significantly reinvesting, and prior to the invasion of Ukraine, uh, and I go back to 2014 when they went into Crimea, I go back to 2008 when we were discussing in Bucharest having them join NATO then, and, and I can't help but lament the fact that we were not more, more proactive and forward-leaning to get them in. But, uh, you know, to go back to your question, I truly believe that there is still a bit of, you know, a sense that... Sp- Splendid isolationism is going to keep us uh, safe, and and our uh, you know here in North America we don't feel that proximity, but you can be sure that there are Russian and Chinese and perhaps other uh, adversaries' assets not far from our shores, and without getting into all the discussion around cyber attacks and electromagnetic pulse capability and even sending these so-called Chinese weather balloons across our skies they can reach out and touch us in a in a very harmful way in numerous ways and so you're absolutely right uh Scotty the the potential for this war to not only spill over into the european uh continent which would inevitably bring canada into the conflict along with the us and, and all of our our allies but are we talking about that and more importantly acting upon that knowledge sufficiently no there is a big economic benefit that needs to be explained and unpacked to our country as yours that says look if we are sending armament and significant military hardware into a theater of operations as we did in afghanistan it boosts our economy right. and you know no no more so than in the united states but there is significant military yeah, manufacturing do. in Canada. And so, you know, yes, we need to, at the same time, and I, I emphasize this, we, we need to replenish our own military capability, which we're not doing enough of. But this is an ideal opportunity to do both. And to do it in concert, uh, interoperability is such an important consideration now. And so across NATO allies, we are essentially using and building and and uh, working Collaboratively, to have the right defense capabilities. And so we're not doing enough. Uh, it's and and I you know this is not a partisan discussion, but we're the current government is not prioritizing this to the extent that they should. And you know, I have a unique perspective on this, and and there are things that I certainly regret and wish we had done more of. Um it was a different time, different priority. We were in Afghanistan, and we were using, Um, That as an opportunity to invest and have Canadian companies and, and in some cases, uh, cooperative um, industries in North America building necessary military hardware. But we should be doubling, if not tripling, that effort. And it's at a critical point. Um, We need to make those investments now. We need to use uh, this as an opportunity to examine our own North American perimeter. And of course, we could talk, I alluded earlier to the Arctic, that is a vulnerability point that NORAD is quite concerned with. And NORAD modernization is also a big part of this equation.
2: I wanted to jump in on that point because I think during the Cold War, going all the way back, not all of our listeners will remember it very well, but there was a period when we relied on a nuclear umbrella to make up for the shortfall of and manpower and, and other things that we had. The Soviets just had numbers, 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 but we had a, we had nuclear weapons, and that was the equalizer. But what's amazing to me about Ukraine now and, and some of the conflicts we're seeing is defense innovation really goes across a range of things. You You have to be worried about nuclear weapons, particularly in space, if that's Putin's plan, as we're starting to hear, as well as little drones that are made you know, out of spare parts that you used to be able to get at Radio Shack when Radio Shack was a thing. Um, it, it's kind of an amazing spectrum of the economy that touches on it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how, what that means for Canadian and US companies that want to get into defense manufacturing, maybe don't see themselves as defense manufacturers and yet they have the relevant skills. And, and while you're thinking of that, a related bit. We've talked several times in the show about uh, critical minerals and how important it is that we develop critical mineral supplies, often because we're talking about energy transition and sustainable energy, sometimes because we're worried about consumer electronics, but the military needs critical minerals, too. And this strikes me as as a very key piece where Canada plays an important role. But over to you, uh, am I right about this?
3: You're 100% right for one small addendum, and that is uh, with respect to nuclear. Canada never had nuclear capability, although... There's a history there as to where those those certain weapons were. Um, but look, the the whole discussion um, in the run-up to what's happening in Ukraine and, and the Middle East now and potentially Taiwan has been around dual use technology. And that is, there's a domestic application, but yes, there's a military application. and And the military have for decades. Uh, always been at the, the forefront of new capabilities. I mean, the internet, what we're doing here today for communications, satellites, it, it's, it's critically important that we continue to cooperate, not only Canada, US, and, and of course, our economies are so tightly intertwined, NAFTA, now USMCA, trade agreements, the military and security establishment that that exists and our and you know, decades, century-long cooperation going back to 1812. That little dust up, and uh, but since then we've been on the same side of the battlefield. Let's let's be clear. But you know, to your point, there is massive uh, progress being made in subsea uh, autonomous vehicles. You mentioned drones. I mean, you can pick up at Canadian Tire. Uh, smaller drones and, and the and the necessary equipment to to make larger ones, uh, and, and so that that is a reality that is playing out in real time, but it's also happening at a much more accelerated place uh, pace inside Ukraine, where out of necessity, out of survival, they they have had to beg, steal, and borrow, and make all kinds of new innovations, including using. Uh, I thought quite interestingly. Sea which are made by Bombardier in Canada, as a, as a That's defensive great. weapon, in the Black Sea. So, look, you're you're spot on. Uh, Canadian industry, U.S. industry has to spool up, and and really take this as an opportunity and a challenge, to to manufacture these new types of defensive or dual use technologies that are going to be brought to the forefront. And I'll tell you, I'll I'll put down a marker right now. Ukraine is going to teach. NATO, Canada, U.S., all of our allies, an awful lot about what it means to be able to respond to such a significant threat. And it's again, it's a stunning revelation that we have not been able to accelerate, although it's happening now, our ability to help them in more substantial ways.
1: That's exactly right, Peter you know i want to we could talk about ukraine and and it's worthy you know for forever but but i want to i want to pick up on something that you said and it's also you know i didn't i didn't mean for everything to go back to the halifax forum but you you mentioned uh what's happening in the arctic and i want to talk about that for a minute and i will say years ago probably 10 or 12 years ago um, at a Halifax International Security Forum conference, there was a discussion of the Arctic um, on the main stage, and then there was a small dinner, and I think, I think you and I attended the small dinner. It's one of the, one of the Halifax uh, signature items where you get thought leaders and then hangers-on like me around to talk about big issues of the world and, and what's happening in the Arctic, not only melting so it becomes more navigable, but also domain, under the ice domain awareness, um, who is in charge. You mentioned um, Canada's neighbors. Let's let's dig into that for a minute, because in the United States, the people who think about the Arctic are almost all Alaskans, right? Lisa Murkowski, great United States senator, knows a heck of a lot about Arctic policy. The Pentagon has uh, an Arctic policy uh, a lot because of our forces based in Alaska. But in Canada, it's 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 an entire giant border. And I think can, Canadians, even if they haven't traveled up there as we have, um haven't been to the north, at least identify with it more. But Canada doesn't on a daily basis, you know, kind of lean into all of the challenges and opportunities that are there in the Arctic in a way that you might expect it would based on just your simple geography. So help us unpack that a little bit. it seems It seems complicated.
3: It is complicated, but it is such an important part of our country and such a massive part of our country, uh, north of 60. We um, in Canada have sometimes a romantic notion of what it is in the Arctic. It is predominantly uh, indigenous people, First Nations people. There are some major city centers uh, like Whitehorse, Yellowknife, Iqaluit. um, But really, it's a sparse population spread out across almost... You know, ten thousand kilometers or five hundred miles in the u s. there's or five uh, That's five thousand cool, yeah. miles. but it, it's a uh, it's a spectacularly important part of Canada for defense and security, as you mentioned, critical minerals and resources, as Chris alluded to earlier, and uh, you know our ability to ex- to really exercise sovereignty over that massive, challenging domain because of weather. But you know, also because of low satellite communication capability, because of the change that's happening. I mean, Scotty, you will see no more profound change when it comes to our climate than in the Arctic. And I say that in a personal observation, I went there when I was 17 on supply ships. I spent two summers as a student working in the high Arctic went to a lot of these little communities with life supplies basically everything that they needed because you yeah. could only get in this is in the 80s uh, at certain times of the year because the, the ice was just too thick and too difficult to navigate right, right. went back 25 years later as you know part of the um, Canadian armed forces arctic maneuvers <laughs> what they called operation nanook doing you know basically military training and working with our Arctic Rangers, who are predominantly indigenous people. And it was it, it was mind-numbing how much had changed since I had been there as a student. Waters were open. The tundra had, uh, had blossomed and changed. The, the permafrost, in many cases, had, had left. And so that is a reality that we have to deal with. We also need infrastructure there in order to be able to service the needs. We need deep water refueling capabilities. We need to be able to service ships at the ports. God forbid that there was ever a spill or some sort of a disaster there. Search and rescue is a big part of the necessity for Canada to exercise their their sovereignty and also keep an eye on things, observation. There was something called the dew line years ago, but it's antiquated mm-hmm. equipment now. And that's why um, what they talk of uh, NORAD modernization really is a replacement mm-hmm. with satellites, uh, interoperable, interconnected, Uh, observation systems. That is what really is going to require a lot of attention and a lot of uh, investment. So yes, and this this has been a longstanding discussion to come back to Halifax. I remember Chuck Hagel, the Secretary of Defense, making uh, public for the first time, you may have been there, the Arctic strategy of the United States of America in Halifax. Uh, I mean, I can't talk about Halifax without mentioning John McCain, and his uh, affection Absolutely. and affinity for for not just that forum, but for Canada and and his recognition of the close national, bi-national relationship and, and the congressional delegation, people currently like Dan Sullivan, uh, you know, who's been critical, but at the same time is doing so in a way that's meant to be constructive. And, you know, the last thing I'll say is that when Sarah Palin said, you know, we have got to be aware of the Russians, I, you know, they're, we, I come from Alaska, I can see them from here. You know, she she was not being literal. But, you know, the point is, there is a proximity and a a threat vulnerability discussion that has to be had if we're going to be realistic about protecting the interests of the entirety of North America.
1: Well, you know, Peter, just before I pivot to Chris on Arctic, you know, the other place that you didn't mention, and it's 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 in many ways the gateway to the Arctic is also in the news this week, and that's Churchill, Manitoba. You know, it sits on the on the western shore of the Hudson Bay. It's it's considered subarctic. It's the polar bear capital of the world. It's also where belugas come to give birth in the summer. It's an absolutely magical place. And when you talk about infrastructure and servicing the north, uh, the government of Manitoba and Canada just announced um, investment in the railroad that goes up there. I worked on the Hudson Bay Railroad years ago when there was a 200-year flood event, but Seems to me, investing in Churchill as a launching pad to help deal with the Arctic. It not only has a deep water port and a grain elevator and a railroad, but it also has a massive runway. So you can land that's already built. So you can land airplanes. You can bring in ships in the summer. You can bring in, uh, you know, whatever you need on, on the uh, railway. So anyway, just 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 a little plug for Churchill because it's in the news again this week and it's and it's key.
3: It's a great point, Scotty. And I wrote an article about that a couple of years ago outlining just what you've said the need to recapitalize that infrastructure because a lot of it is there but it it really needs to be upgraded and connected and uh, there needs to be navigational buoys etc put in place to enable to to really unlock the potential of the port of churchill but really i'm I'm delighted to see that that is happening now but we need a sustained effort and we need to you know recapitalize that railroad the road itself—it's right. going to require a lot of maintenance because it's, uh, you know, it's an area that does get hit in the winter with harsh weather. But it's—it's it's yeah. such an important link to the Arctic, as are the, the two entry points, uh, east and west, on on our coastlines.
1: That's exactly right. Um, we're going to take a little bit of a break here in a second, and when we come back, we're gonna we're gonna continue traveling around the world. We. Um, we haven't talked yet about the war in Gaza, and we haven't gone across the Pacific either. Um, so we'll take a break and we'll come back. But one last point about the Arctic I wanted to mention, and it and it and it ties to what we'll talk about next, is when you mentioned Chuck Hagel at at, our, at Halifax, he was the Secretary of Defense. He comes to Halifax with the congressional delegation, Senator Gene Shaheen, Senator Tim Kaine, uh, the the great John McCain, as you say, and he chose it to debut the Pentagon's Arctic policy. And I was sitting next to a group of Israeli business leaders and politicians, and they said, you think defense is about the North Pole? What is wrong with the U.S. and Canada? It was really funny. It's quite important, but the perspective, if you're sitting in Israel— uh, or if you're sitting in Ukraine, or if you're sitting across in the uh, South China Sea, totally different. So when we come back, uh, we'll get into all of that right after this.
0: What did Prime Minister William Lye Mackenzie King and President Woodrow Wilson have in common? Yes, they both led their countries during wartime, but they were also the only leaders of their countries to hold a PhD. At the Wilson Center's Canada Institute, we follow these academic civil servants to bring the public the best nonpartisan research and analysis. We're the only think tank in DC focused on this vital relationship. So, in addition to the great repartee you get to hear on Canusa Street, head over to wilsoncenter.org to check out the Canada Institute's work and events.
2: Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Chris Sands, and I'm here with Scotty Greenwood, a blast from the past, but also come back for a very special episode here of Canusa Street with Peter McKay, the founder of the Health International that Security Fund. That's only back, form.
1: Chris. <laughs> Sorry, that's the only thing. You and Peter McKay is is the dream team. So I'm happy to I'm happy to be back.
2: Well, <laughs> I don't know if I'm in the same league as Peter McKay, but I'm very happy to be in the same league in your affection, Scotty. Um, Peter, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the Indo-Pacific, and we published a paper at uh, the Canada Institute earlier this year talking about how, in many ways, the Indo-Pacific and the Arctic are very linked, and with Russia and China in a no-limits partnership uh, and the Belt and Road in some places getting stalled, China is increasingly seeing the North Sea route over the top of Russia as a strategic advantage. Um, and yet the Indo-Pacific is an area where the US seems to be building strategic alliances in big ways and Canada is not at the table. So could you talk a little bit about the Indo-Pacific, what Canada could bring to that conversation and uh, and what what you think is holding back uh, our Indo-Pacific allies
3: from from really bringing Canada in? Yeah, I mean that that is a complex question because there's there's no reason why Canada shouldn't be playing more of a prominent role. Given our history there, Canada was, was in China, had the uh, political uh, ties, connective tissue in the region, arguably even before the United States, and was at the table, certainly, for the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and, and, and that, how that has unrolled. We also, to, to I think our detriment, have not been thus far invited to join AUKUS, um, which is a security alliance with uh, with Australia and the u k and uh, and has important implications for for our country's interests and in defense uh, in the region. We also have close ties to Taiwan. I, I was in Taiwan last year, Chris, for a, an important defense and security forum. I was shocked, frankly, at how sort of resolute uh, they are and how they feel that there is an imminent invasion coming. They've accepted that. They're preparing for it. There is important, of course, economic ties uh, with semiconductors and the impact that that will have throughout all of North America and the world were that invasion to happen. And we also know, frankly, um, just given the, the horrific cost to humanity that we're seeing in Ukraine, what it would mean, an island invasion of Taiwan would be ugly in the extreme and, uh, and and bloody, and it would require massive military bombardment of the island because of the proximity with China. And in it, 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 any way, it's it's horrific to think of, but it's it is more I don't want to say imminent, but more likely now than it was yesterday. It's moving rapidly in that direction, and there is a very insidious desire on the part of China to do there what they have accomplished in places like Hong Kong. And so I, I'm very concerned about it. Answering your question directly, why isn't Canada more engaged, more involved? It's reputational. Uh, what do we bring to the table? Um, it's in, in part strained relations that Canada has with China that, uh, that also exists between the US and China, but I would suspect that they're more pronounced because they can. You know, they, they can do things to Canada that they can't do to the United States for fear of reprisal, both economic and otherwise. But we are there. We, we've had ships that pass through the South China Sea. We do military maneuvers there. We we are partners within the region uh, to many of the countries, including, of course, and most importantly, arguably, South Korea and Japan, but but other countries there as well. And so you know, I'm hoping that that can change. I'm hoping that Canada can and will become much more engaged on many different levels, including trade. We are an important trade partner. But I'll say this it does come back to what's unfolding in Ukraine and to some degree, perhaps a slightly lesser degree, what's happening in the Middle East. But China's watching, they're watching how the world reacts. Their watch, And that means both in terms of military and in, in terms of the, the local resistance and what support is being lent to them by the alliance. And I, I think it's also fair to say that they're using this to their advantage. They're, they're using the fact that the world is distracted to play up their advantage. They're building their military at an alarming pace. We struggle, most countries struggle to get to 2% spending on military of their GDP. China is spending almost double figures. You know, 8, 9, 10% some years investing in things like aircraft carriers, icebreakers. Well, I've been to Beijing. There's no ice in the harbor at, at Beijing. They are calling themselves a near Arctic neighbor. A near Arctic neighbor? Have you looked at a map? They they do have interests, as you said, in terms of trade route. Because of the opening of Arctic ice, they're there now uh, doing research. There's a lot to be concerned about and a lot to unpack in terms of what China is up to and what their intentions are. And we have a an inquiry going on in Canada right now into foreign interference that centers around China and Iran and others. So it, it's it's there. It's in our face. It should be more proximate in our thinking. I'm hoping that we're going to see that change and we become a little more engaged in the future and how we prepare ourselves and what we do to ensure that Canada's interests are protected.
2: And one place to start, um, I was interested earlier this year, I guess, when um, President Biden brought together uh, his counterparts in Japan and South Korea. And there's been a remarkable, very much China driven rapprochement between. China, between Japan and South Korea, on both a cultural but also a security sense, and there's this talk of a Northern Triad, but Canada's uh, Indo-Pacific strategy expressly says cooperation in the North Pacific with Japan, Korea, and the United States is is a critical way to guard the gateway to the Arctic and to build coordination with with some very sophisticated allies. Do, do you think that's an area where, where Canada will finally find uh, a real toehold in
3: this region? I certainly hope so. I don't think there can be any real discussion around the Arctic without Canada at the table. We're part of the Arctic Council, which is currently suspended because of of Russia. Uh, so that may be, as you put it, a toehold in it. Might it might allow us to become more relevant to the discussion, and we should be. I, I mean, Canada was was in Korea, you know, during the Korean conflict. We've uh, you, you know tacitly uh, involved in many of the the goings on in the Asia Pacific for for decades now. There was a time not that long ago, which is a bit jarring to think about, that Canada. Gave foreign aid to China. You know, hard to envision given the size of their economy today. But we've, we've been, uh, you know, an important, albeit mid level actor in the Asia Pacific for a very long time. And I hope, as I said, and hope isn't a strategy, but we can reestablish ourselves there by showing up and, uh, and bringing to the table diplomatically and, and from a security basis good ideas. Uh, satellites, of course, bring us all together. That's another area Canada has niche capabilities in space, and that's going to be an important part of any uh, hope that we have to maintain both sovereignty and and protection over the Arctic.
1: You know, I have a I have a little glimmer of hope on this front to offer, and and I'll just debut it uh, uh, and and see what see what you guys think. Um, you know, the U.S. and Canada both do. Do talk about the Indo-Pacific region quite a lot. Uh, Secretary Gina Raimondo, who's the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, uh, j- just held a lunch last week in Washington um, to launch the tra- presidential trade mission to the Philippines. Okay, so she's at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and uh, several companies, including including ours, um, attended. And what was notable, and so it was kind of the pregame, like let's let's get our acts together before we head over uh, to the Philippines next month. And what was notable about Secretary Ramondo's leadership here is she brought the chairman of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, General, uh, excuse me, Admiral John Aquilino uh, from Hawaii, into this meeting. So the U.S. when it does a trade mission, brings admirals and generals, <clears throat> and and what, what one of the generals there said was, you know what, I'll take a trade agreement as much as an aircraft carrier for our needs. And so when you – so 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 put that to the side for one second. On the other side, Minister Mary Ng, I think, is doing five trade missions to Indo-Pacific this year. Uh, and, again, we're going to participate – I'm going to participate in at least two of them, uh, maybe three, uh, Malaysia and Vietnam next month next month. Uh, and the Business Council of Canada is participating. Anyway, <clears throat> so my here's the idea I want to debut for both of you, and maybe Chris and Peter, you can react. But if you need both trade agreements and aircraft carriers, the U.S. at the moment, unfortunately, isn't doing any new trade agreements. It's politically challenging to do that. Canada isn't building any aircraft carriers. So if we, back to the Canusa Street theme here, if we act as a unit, Canada and the U.S. together, Canada could lead the way on trade. The U.S. could lead the way on defense capability. And together, uh, you know, we could have a coherent Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, If we think about addressing the world's problems together, as opposed to one-offs and, you know, sniping at each other and then figuring out the world, what's your, our our listeners can't see this, but, but we are on Zoom and and we can see over your shoulder, Peter. I think you might be at a home office, but you've got all kinds of maple leafs flags behind you, but you've also got an American flag. So you're, I just feel like this is the right this is the right uh, question uh, to pose to you and to Chris. So Canada on trade, U.S. on military, and together maybe we can make a difference. What do you think?
3: I think it would make a difference, and I think, as you put it, um, a coherent. Collaborative approach is uh, is what's needed given, uh, as we've talked about already a little bit, the complexity and the, the lengthy history and, and, quite frankly, Chinese aggression and ambition uh, in the region. There, there are also other actors there that we need to, I believe, engage with more. India, importantly, is a, is a commonwealth country, a country that also has enormous trade potential that we've seen some countries try to pivot to. Canada is in a bit of a penalty box right now over uh, problems that we've had and accusations that have been made, but I won't go there. Um, but I, I think the the idea of having joint or multilateral trade missions uh, is a good one. We haven't really capitalized on the trade potential there to the extent that we, we could. The world needs food. The world needs energy, that region in particular. We have that in uh, in spades in North America. Although Canada has been very uh, unfortunately behind the ball and losing ground in that space, and, and it it occurs to me that if we go there together, as you suggest, and play to our strengths and do it in a way that really demonstrates mutual benefit, uh, I think that is to everyone's advantage. And so, whether it will happen, that very much remains to be seen. Um, you know, Canada and, and U.S. have been so uh, successful in terms of our, our economic ties, our security ties, that we have a, a really strong platform to work from. But doing it in unison in another country, in another region, isn't something that we have been very successful at in the past. When it comes to working around, you know, environment Energy, the security piece is there. Trade between our nations and, and Mexico included—that has worked out spectacularly well. It takes it to a whole new level, as you know, uh, Scotty. To, to sort of take that uh, building block, if you will, and transport it to another region, but it, is, it certainly is worth trying and it's worth exploring. If you get the right people in the right posts, it could happen, and. You know, frankly, out of necessity, I think we may find ourselves there with some of the the choppy waters that we see on the horizon in terms of uh, recession and the economy. Peter, the, um, I want to I want
2: to build on that a little bit because I think you, you earlier on talked about Canada's role in, in in very much two ways: one on the strategic side, the defense side, but the other on the economic side, and. Going back to that period after World War II, when when really much of the world was on its knees, it had been just such a, a tremendous conflict, the role that Canada played as the breadbasket of the world, along with the U.S., providing food um, and Canada's current potential to become a much bigger energy exporter for our Asia-Pacific allies, given that Ukraine's grain shipments have been disrupted by the war, even to the Middle East, where what we produce here in North America can help meet real needs, and with conflicts emerging everywhere, disrupting supply chains, could Canada really up its game, not just on the strategic side, but on the strategic supply side, to help those who are under pressure from what so far is our relatively safer spot here in North America?
3: Absolutely, Chris. I mean, you, you've you nailed it. Um, you know, wheat... For certain uh, you know canola, chickpeas, barley beets, oh, there's so much potential in terms of the world's needs on the food supply chain. Energy, one hundred percent, you know, third largest reserves right now, they're mostly under our feet. We're not producing nearly enough. We don't have the infrastructure um, in terms of pipelines to get them east and west, let alone in sufficient supply, perhaps to the United States, but Where we're also, I think, in a a really contradictory position, and you alluded to this earlier, is critical minerals. We're moving to clean energy. We're moving away from fossil fuels, although I would suggest the transitional fuel, liquefied natural gas, is something that we should really be pushing, quite frankly, especially to the Asia-Pacific and India, Pakistan, parts of Europe. They, They would take everything we could give them and more. But critical minerals, if they are going to be the panacea uh, of building batteries, again, we're having a really hard time because of overregulation, because of limitations and restrictions that are being placed on mining companies to get you know, uh, lithium, to get uh, even iron ore, uh, manganese, these critical minerals to build batteries. Uh, again, the world is calling out for Canada. To to play a more prominent role and, and to get into the export business again in, in real terms. That would do, as Scotty knows, wonders for the Canadian economy. It would be game changing and to mix metaphors, put us back in the game in many ways. And and we did that before. You're absolutely right. I just finished rereading a book I'd read on Churchill years ago, and people forget two things about Canada. Number one, yes. We were big providers of of foodstuff to the world, but played a massively important role in the the Battle of the Atlantic in keeping those supply chains open between North America and the theater of operations, but a lot of concentration on the UK. and Canada, we had the, the third largest navy in the world at the end of World War II. We were part of the bomber command and sent many, many pilots uh, let alone aircraft that were produced in Canada. And there were, you know, interesting historical fact, Scotty, there were a lot of Americans that came up and served in the Royal Canadian Air Force as part of the, the early part of both really? World War I and World War II. So wow. that, that history is, is really remarkable. And a lot of the, the training that went on between Canada and the U.S. at that time to, that led to the eventual entry into the conflict of the United States happened on Canadian soil.
1: You know there's something really special about that and i was thinking you know back we're full circle now back you think about ukraine and you know will we send f-16s when will we send that kind of capability and uh one of the things we could do in the meantime while the u.s is debating you know when when to send that uh the aircraft we could be training pilots and you know there's a wonderful Canadian company I'm familiar with they're top aces based in Montreal they are former fighter pilots from Canada who now train NATO allies Canadian forces US forces in Germany etc um on F35 on F16 on all of that and so Canada could be training pilots right now um for the eventual Ukrainian pilots, for the eventuality of we're going to send over those kinds of weapons so that so that finally Ukraine can prevail in this war. I think I think that would be great. let me um let me just we're coming to the end of our time here, but let me let me just weigh in for a second and let you react. Um, on critical minerals, there's another great Canadian story. Um, which is Tech Resources. If people don't know about Tech Resources, Google it. It's the most, it's the largest, most significant critical minerals developer in North America, and they have the Red Dog Mine in Alaska. They partner with Alaska Native Corporation, and they so they they mine it in Alaska. They bring they bring the resource to Canada to process it, process it for the Canadians, and it creates. Um, important commercial and defense goods right here in North America. Allies showing, French showing, all of that. So, you think about pilot training, you think about critical minerals, there are Canadian gems. Uh, And we just need to do more of it. We need to do more of it.
3: I I 100% agree. And it's great for our economy. It's it's getting Canadians and Americans in the workforce, a younger generation who are, are, you know, coming out of trade schools and universities and and need to get into that stream. It also, you alluded to an important point for Canada in particular, is our Indigenous people, fastest growing, youngest population. And in those northern communities and some of the remote communities, it's all about them. and, And they should be prominent, not just participants, but partners in many of these exercises of harvesting our natural resources. And so those things are all there. Um, They really are uh, the the potential to break out of what has been a bit of a malaise. We're still, I think, feeling the effects and the hangover of COVID, but a more unified approach to come back to, I think, an enduring theme uh, of much of what you have talked of in your broadcast and both of you have worked towards is really utilizing this mutual reinforcing history that we have, uh, what the military sometimes call a force multiplier. We are so much stronger when we combine our efforts, our intellectual force, our, our you know, uh, ability to, to generate wealth and, and produce things and have a manufacturing strategy and protect the environment and the water and the air and the space around us. We are such a blessed you know partner in so much of what we do in North America. We have so much abundance, uh, especially of people and innovation and and good values and all of those things that uh, that we take pride in as Canadians and Americans. But we really need to continue the historic trend of working towards those mutual benefits. And uh, you know that, has to be, and I, you know, I, I've spoken to people like Brian Mulrooney, you know, who worked so closely first with Ronald Reagan and, and then with George Bush Sr. to bring about that historic trade agreement that later included Mexico. But I remember Mr. Mulroney saying, you know, that the second most important job, and the first being, of course, the protection and promotion of Canada's interests and people, the second most important file on the prime minister's desk is that of Canada-US relations. And that is as true today, as it was going back 20, 30, 50, 100 years. It is so important in North America that we are joined at the hip.
2: Peter Peter McKay, I think that really sums up a theme throughout this conversation and why I think so many people look to you as one of the sort of global statesmen who sees clearly what a lot of people missed from election interference to conflicts around the world, authoritarian regimes are working overtime to divide us, domestically, to divide allies, to create all sorts of jealousies and and fake news to, to spin us in different directions. And I think you brought us back to the essential bit. Being united, trusting each other, building those close ties, that's the best antidote to the kind of chaos that they're offering the rest of the world. And uh, and if we can listen to people like you, I, I feel like we're going to make it
3: somehow. We'll make it after all. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And, and I, uh, I look to both of you who have been extraordinary leaders in academic and, and, and trade and discussions at the highest level of our governments. And that has to continue. And it's, you know, to, to perhaps state the obvious, it's people to people that really matter at the end of the day. And that connective tissue is strong. It needs to be reinforced. We're, we're you know, often described as siblings or, or cousins. We are the same people. And we can never forget that. We're going through the same challenges in this generation as they did in previous generations. But as long as we keep that trust and that reliance on one another and that understanding that this, this journey that we're on is, is together, uh, we're going to be fine. We're going to come through this And we're gonna endure as we have previous periods of our history that were challenging, but there is strength in the unity of our nations.
1: Peter, what a perfect way to, hopeful note to end this conversation and uh, such a delight to to spend time with you. I learn from you every single time and, and Canada and the United States and the world are better for your leadership, so keep it up. You're a young guy. You got plenty, plenty in front of you. So uh, we look forward to to uh, to your adventures and the adventures of your beautiful, wonderful family as well. So uh, again, thanks, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad, I'm glad we were able to get this together.
3: Thanks so much, Scotty and Chris. I look forward to seeing you soon as well. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Peter McKay. You're always welcome on Canusa Street. Come back again soon.
1: Well Chris, thanks for having me back. It's great to get the band back together here on Canusa Street. I've I've missed it in my in my adventures outside of North America, but uh, a, a great conversation uh, truly uh, right around the world with the Honorable Peter McKay. He is he's an extraordinary leader, honestly.
2: He he is amazing and the way in which he pulls together all of the threads it was really impressive. But but in a way, it was interesting because, you know, we talked about him and we talked about Peter Van Praag, his partner in the Halifax Security Forum's founding. Uh, we talked about you, we talked about Beth Burke. Um, you know, this was a coming together of great people, but also a, a signal that tra- that there is continuity and that you're always welcome back on Canusa Street. Beth and I will do our best to keep things going. And hopefully we'll have Peter McKay and Peter Van Praag back to talk about these global issues. It's a uh, it's always relevant, and it's always great to have you back.
1: Thank you so much, and and we did miss Beth Burke. I, you know, it's February. She lives in Wisconsin, and she quite rightly, I think, is somewhere much warmer this week. So um, I was happy to to come back in for for one last hurrah, and uh, maybe it's not the last hurrah, Chris. I'll come back any any time you want. Maybe maybe when I get back from Indo Pacific, we can we can. Uh, bring Minister Mary Ng back, Secretary Gina Raimondo, and talk about how Canada and the United States are uh, playing a critical role uh, in that part of the world as well. And that part of the world plays a critical role in what we do. From Canusa Street to the world, my friends.
2: Canusa Street to the world, yes. We have, our, we have our local news, but really, Canusa Street on either end connects to a wider world. And so it's great to have you. It was great to have Peter McKay. And we'll see you again soon, I hope.
1: See you soon. Thanks, Chris.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.